0: Welcome to How to Save a Planet. I'm Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson.
1: And I'm Alex Bloomberg, And this is the show where we talk about what we need to do to address the climate crisis and how we're going to make those things happen.
0: Alex, I just... Googled spotted owl, Ecosia spotted owl. Uh And I don't know why I doubted whether or not they'd be cute, because I think all owls are pretty good looking. Uh It's no exception.
1: Do you know that we, um, two weekends ago, did I tell you what we did? No,
0: I'm not up to date on your off hours activities.
1: I can't believe I didn't tell you this. So, you know, my son Calvin's really into birds.
0: Very into birds.
1: And he, like, he did a bird unit in third grade and then became obsessed with it and then literally read the entire North American Field Guide to, to Birds.
0: <laughs> you have a very good kid.
1: <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> and, like, memories every single Amazing. <laughs> and then we, we joined the Audubon Society, signed up, and uh, we go on these bird walks around, you know, sort of like New York to Jamaica Bay and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there was, there was one other kid there. And so they became sort of like birdwalk friends.
0: I love this.
1: Yes. Anyway, (laughs) a few weeks ago, Calvin's friend's mom texted me and was like, a couple of snowy owls have been sighted at Jones Beach. Um, And she told me where to go to see them. And so my family and I, we went out to look for snowy owls. And, you know, these owls, they usually hang out around the Arctic Circle. But in the winter, they come down south to Long Island, apparently.
0: Hanging out on Long Island
1: and they they sort of nest in sort of like on shore like
0: in the dunes
1: in that like right off the beach mm-hmm. and uh and so we went out there and we saw this snowy owl and it was gigantic Was it white? It was white and fluffy and crazy looking and mm-hmm. to your point super cute
0: Super cute. Yes. I mean, how could you not want to protect an owl?
1: <laughs> Who doesn't want to protect an owl?
0: That is the question <laughs> well, actually for today.
1: You've lured me into your podcast intro trap, <laughs> you crafty <laughs> podcast host. <laughs> right, why are we talking about owls?
0: So, we're talking about owls today because there's another species of owl that kicked up quite a controversy out in the Pacific right. Northwest a while ago.
1: And it was a controversy that we're both sort of vaguely familiar with. Like mm-hmm. it was the it was a controversy over the spotted owl
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and I I remember it showing up in the newspaper, and I remember hearing about it, and it had to do with, like, the spotted owl, which is protected by the Endangered Species Act. And there were a bunch of logging companies who wanted to log on the land where the spotted owl was living, but were being blocked because of the owl's protection under the Endangered Species Act.
0: Mm-hmm. As a protected species, yeah.
1: And I always knew about that, that story. But then I heard this podcast that we both listened to mm-hmm. called Timber Wars. It's the fascinating backstory to that big conflict that happened. And I realized that, like, the actual story of what led to that standoff was something that I didn't really know.
0: Yeah, and it's I found it to be really, I don't know if informative is the right word, but really sort of illuminating, I guess, because the Spotted Owl is now bandied about as a shorthand for these conflicts, these clashes between— conservation and industry. And this Mm -hmm. is a really interesting case study in seeing how all that plays out. And of course, I am a firm believer that the dichotomy between livelihoods and conservation is a false one. But um, you need to sort of dig into the details to sort out how these things do versus should play out.
1: So today on the show, we're gonna play you an episode from this podcast, Timber Wars, which is the story of how this fight over old growth trees and the spotted owl erupted into this national conflict and how that has influenced environmental policy for for decades.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's also ended up shaping how we manage our forests to prevent wildfires and address climate change. So please enjoy from Oregon Public Broadcasting this first episode of the show, Timber Wars.
1: We'll turn it over to Timber War's host, Aaron Scott, right after this break.
2: For just a minute, I want you to consider the logger. Bearded, burly, wearing suspenders and a flannel shirt, he's an American icon— He looks like Johnny Cash sounds.
3: Ride this train to Roseburg, Oregon. Now there's a town for you, and you talk about rough.
2: Cash didn't do a lot of songs about Oregon loggers, but in 1960, he released a concept album about golden Americana. Stories and songs about gunslingers, coal miners, and, of course, track number three, Lumberjacks. Well, you work in the woods from morning to night. You laugh and
4: sing and you cuss and fight. On Saturday night, you go to Eugene.
2: And on a Sunday morning, your pockets are clean. Lockers are the epitome of rugged masculinity. I mean, go into any hipster bar, and you'll find that flannel and beard lumberjack uniform. But if you sidled up to that bar and started talking about how you'd spent the day cutting down big old trees, those same hipsters would probably throw their beer in your face. Because these days, actual logging is unacceptable. It's gone from a Johnny Cash song to a Simpsons joke.
1: Well, Jerry, you're a whale of a lobbyist, and uh, I'd like to give you a logging permit. I would, but, uh... This isn't like burying toxic waste. People are going to notice those trees are gone.
2: Of course, buried under the joke is a lot of pain and politics and the collapse of an entire way of life. So, this is the story of how people started thinking less about loggers and more about trees and started valuing forests as more than just timber and how that small shift in thinking turned into an epic battle that engulfed the Northwest, then spilled out across the rest of the country. From Oregon Public Broadcasting, I'm Aaron Scott. And this fight over natural resources and the environment laid the groundwork for future conflicts, both the ones we're fighting now and those to come. So if you want to understand where we're going, you have to understand the Timber Wars. Buried to their waste, environmentalists blockaded this logging road. You live in a, a mobile home made out of wood, your paychecks are printed on paper pulp. Environmentalists are accused of turning the Endangered Species Act into a terrorist
5: weapon. So it was scary on a lot of levels. And when you say timber wars, it's not a huge exaggeration. I really hope that someday it doesn't come into
3: a civil war, but I see our country going that way.
2: Johnny Cash's Lumberjack Song is about a boy learning to log with his dad in Oregon. It's not far off from the story of Stephen Weaver.
3: I started in the timber industry, basically out of high school.
2: I went to meet Stephen at his home in Staten, Oregon. There's an electric baby grand in the living room. Who plays the piano?
3: Oh, I do. (laughs) Country western's always been kind of my... My kick, you know, so I play a little bit of that classical stuff.
2: I don't usually think of loggers as playing classical at their own baby grand. But that's why I was here. I had a lot to learn. For example, in the world of logging, there are actually a number of different jobs. But the guys who cut down the trees, the guys who yell timber, they're called tree fallers or timber cutters. And that's what Stefan did.
3: Yeah, you had a lot of pride in what you did. Some of them... Ninety-nine percent of the timber cutters did. There was that one or two percent that were just there for the buck. But some of the best timber cutters came out of the Detroit Canyon.
2: Stefan primarily worked in the Detroit Canyon area of the Willamette National Forest. It's huge, the home of seven snow-capped peaks. And it's a wet, dense landscape— Sword ferns, salmon berries, and pillows of moss cover the ground. And the trees, they're almost as big as they come. Douglas fir, western red cedar, western hemlock, they can tower 300 feet into the air and stand 8 feet wide. They feel like pillars holding up the sky, which is maybe why folks who saw them disappearing felt like the sky was falling.
3: Where it really all started was that North Roaring Devil sail and...
2: It's impossible to pin down exactly when the timber wars started, because they had a different beginning for everyone involved. For Stefan, it was in 1989, in these forests, at a timber sale called the North Roaring Devil. (laughs) There were a
3: lot of things that went on up there.
2: (laughs) The U.S. Forest Service names timber sales. Things like North Roaring Devil, Sugarloaf, Hoxie Griffin, Red 90, they can sound like the names of famous battles, which is what some of them were.
3: We were snowmobiling in. We'd have to make two or three trips, you know, because we didn't have a dozen snowmobiles, but it was just a mess.
2: North Roaring Devil included several groves of old-growth trees in the Willamette National Forest. Stefan had been hired to fell the trees, But he says three things were off about this particular job. First, it was late March. There was still snow on the ground, so they had to ride snowmobiles to the timber stands.
3: They didn't want to plow the roads so these other people could walk or drive in. Second,
2: they were trying to keep these other people away from the sale. That is, environmentalists. They had been fighting in court to stop the logging of the giant centuries-old trees. And that led to the third thing that was off. Stefan and his crew were logging on a holiday.
3: Then on Saturday night before Easter, Jim Morgan called
2: me up. Jim Morgan was Stefan's boss at one of the biggest timber companies in the canyon. And he said, I need 10 men.
3: I need them tomorrow morning, Sunday morning. I said, it's Easter, Jim. He says, I don't care. I want 10 cutters in the morning. And you'll be compensated
2: very well for it. So what was with the rush? Well, there was a court date on Tuesday, and there was fear the judge could side with environmentalists and put this logging on hold. So the fallers were racing to cut the trees first.
3: Because once it was on the ground, it was kind of a done deal.
2: So on Easter morning, Stefan and his crew got up before dawn, piled into their trucks pulling snowmobiles, and headed into the woods. A low, chill cloud hung in the air, turning the surrounding trees into giant looming shadows. But this time, the trees weren't the only ones waiting for them. — Logging crews arrived at 5.30 this morning to find 30 protesters who sealed off the entrance to the site. — The protesters were standing shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder across the road and holding signs stating, ''Save our old growth'' and ''Earth first'' The loggers stopped and discovered the media was there, too. This morning, a confrontation seemed possible, but both sides chose to talk about the issues rather than fight over them. The half dozen loggers were outnumbered, so they stood in a circle with a handful of protesters down the road from the bridge. You could tell them apart, because where the loggers favored baseball caps and mustaches, the activists wore beanies and beards. Well, and the other difference, there were women activists.
0: You know, I think this is kind of a. Uh,
1: it's not. An, right it's productive. not. Yeah, this argument is. Well, really I don't think anything's productive. Do you think this you is guys, being
3: productive? i got a crew of men I'm paying I
2: to know. be productive. In the news footage, you can see Stefan standing in the group of loggers, and he looks annoyed.
3: We could talk to them, and they could talk to us, but our views were dramatically different about the situation, so. At that time, there, was any, there wasn't any middle ground, you know. They just didn't want that timber cut. They didn't want any timber cut.
2: Stefan and the loggers had been hired to cut the trees, but they weren't the protesters' real target. That was the logging company that bought the timber and the U.S. Forest Service, which made the sale. Many people today might think of the Forest Service's mission as taking care of the forests. I mean, it's in the name. But actually, the Forest Service's main job at the time, particularly in the Northwest, was selling trees to the highest bidder. And this forest where Stefan was logging was the crown jewel. For decades, it sold more timber than any other national forest in the country, enough to build more than 50,000 homes a year. So logging companies weren't just going to walk away. The loggers called the Forest Service and County Sheriff to deal with the protesters. As word spread through the local community, no one had any idea this was the beginning of a multi-day battle that would change lives on both sides and become known as the Easter Massacre.
5: Some people ran in the door and said, hey, they're going to start logging up at Brighton Bush Hot Springs, and there's a group of us that are going to go up there tonight. We would love to fill up our van with people.
2: This is Katia Juliana. She was one of the protesters who showed up that day and had just graduated from the University of Oregon in Eugene.
5: I drove here in 85, And all I knew about Oregon was that there were lumberjacks and big trees. So I stopped and fell in love with it and never left.
2: The city was a hotbed for liberal activism. But Katya never had time for it. Then the day before Easter, she went to a nonviolence training. Just as it was ending, someone rushed in and said they needed people to protect some ancient trees. So Katya volunteered.
5: We arrived about midnight. And it was full on... Stuff was happening. There was people with walkie-talkies greeting us.
2: The North Roaring Devil sale was near Brighton Bush Hot Springs, an intentional community and retreat center set in some storybook old growth. The action was loosely organized by the environmental group Earth First. I say loosely because no one seemed to know how they were going to stop the loggers. Katya, it was overwhelming.
5: One person who stood up and started talking about making a strategic plan to to really get some stuff accomplished, and it sounded really reasonable. So I was like, I'm just following that guy around, and it ended up being Tim.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Tim Inglesby was a graduate student who worked as a firefighter for the Forest Service in the summer. Not to give away the ending of the story, but he and Katia are now married, and he's with us in their living room. Tim had heard about the logging through friends. He knew that being there was risking his summer job, but he couldn't handle what the clear cuts did to the forest. Those are the proverbial moonscapes.
4: It's just nothing but, you know, scorched earth. This, this is not why I wanted to work for the Forest Service. I want to do Forest Service, and this is quite the opposite.
2: So the night before Easter, while Stefan was calling his cutters, Tim was helping lead the resistance. All they had to do was hold off the loggers two or three days until other environmentalists could file an injunction against the timber sale in court. But this wasn't the first time the Forest Service had gone ahead with a sale like this to head off a court challenge. This was actually the second Easter massacre. So protesters knew that loggers had the upper hand. And if they can lay the trees down before the case went to court, the judge would moot the case. Cause yeah, I mean, yeah,
4: he might've deemed it an illegal timber sale, but he can't order the trees to be stood back up.
2: So we called it at the time chainsaw justice. Chainsaw justice, meaning the loggers' chainsaws got to be judge, jury, and executioner. The protesters stayed up all night, dragging fallen logs and rocks from the forest and piling them on the road anything that would slow down the logging trucks and snowmobiles come morning.
4: Well, I was thinking build a wall between the two barriers of cars, too.
2: We built these immense barricades.
4: And when, you know, dawn's rising, you just see the work, it's okay, the loggers will never get through that.
2: And the loggers didn't. They actually went home that first day after talking with the protesters. But then the Forest Service showed up with a front-end loader. Think bulldozer and within minutes smashed the handiwork of
4: all of us that did hours to build.
5: When they came in with the machinery, I realized I was a little out of my depth, and I got very scared. So I just ran up the road, and I had no idea what I was going to find. Um, and what I ended up finding was this man, Leo, in the middle of the logging road, trying to bury himself in this pyramid of rocks. And he started yelling at me, help me, help me,
4: yeah, buried right up to his neck in a barricade of boulders. And that is what held off that front-end loader. It, it, I mean, if it, it, the blade came right up to him, intimidating him, but he couldn't move, <laughs> so it, it fended him off for that the rest of that day. In the
2: roadway will automatically be arrested. The deputy set to work, moving the rocks and pulling Leo out.
1: Do you want to be carried out, or do you want to walk out?
2: He chose to be carried. Because in these early years, it was all about nonviolent resistance, simply putting your body in the way. Deputies arrested him and 12 others on disorderly conduct that day. But as word spread, more people arrived to take their place.
4: Similar actions have been taking place all through the 80s, but in very remote places, with just a handful of people. This was at Brighton Bush Hot Springs on the doorstep of Portland,
2: so there were Dozens and dozens of people come and hear the news. We're going to go save the forest. Despite the reinforcements, Tim and Katya still felt like they were up against the unstoppable juggernaut of the timber industry and the federal government.
5: How are we, this little ragged band of individuals with very little resources, how are we going to stop this terrible machine that's really, in the span of just a few years, taking the very last parts of the forest?
2: The irony of human psychology is that while the environmentalists felt like they were the proverbial David in the fight against Goliath, the local loggers and their families felt that way too. Rightly or wrongly, they saw these scrappy protesters as representatives of big national environmental groups. Groups that were about to put all future timber sales in national forests on hold, all across the Northwest. So for the loggers... It was like their very existence was under attack. More after this break.
0: Hey, Earthlings. Welcome back. We've been listening to the show Timber Wars from Oregon Public Broadcasting.
1: When we left off, host Aaron Scott was describing how people were literally putting their bodies on the line to protect groves of old-growth trees in the Willamette National Forest in Oregon.
0: And to be honest, when you hear about these chainsaws, this huge equipment coming in ready to tear down the trees, it does seem like a pretty straightforward story of David versus Goliath.
1: Right. On the side of David are the activists and the trees, and on the side of Goliath are the logging companies and the bulldozers. But That is not how the people driving the bulldozers saw it. (laughs) And so we're going to turn it back over to Aaron, who's going to pick up the story from another perspective, the perspective of the loggers.
2: I moved to Oregon the same year as the Easter Massacre, but I was eight. So, frankly, I don't remember it. Hi, Stefan. How are you doing? But I wanted to know what was at stake in the fight over the forest, besides the old growth. So I went back to see Stefan, who was hired to cut the trees. And
3: they're hard to come by, they're kind of dirty out here.
2: We start out back at the shed where he stores his chainsaws. This is pretty much as small a saw as we use. It's bright orange and the size of what you buy at the hardware store.
3: 32-inch bar, that's what we use every day. And
2: but then he reaches into the back of the shed, and he pulls out a big white mechanical box with two handles. It's so big, I would have guessed it was a portable generator, but it's actually the body of his first chainsaw a McCullough 125.
3: It's just missing the
2: saw bar or the long steel plate that the chain whips around to cut into the trees.
3: I could run a 50-inch bar. Four-foot bar, pretty much. I should clean the damn thing up. It just...
2: And is that about as big of a bar as we ever used? We even use some on?
3: bigger ones, some 60-inch bars occasionally.
2: Imagine that for a minute. A chainsaw that's big enough to get on all the rides at Disneyland. How big a tree needs a five-foot-long chainsaw?
3: But I've got some pictures in there. I'll show you some big trees. I've dug them
2: out. Stefan takes me back inside and opens a picture album of the trees they cut at the North Roaring Devil Sale. The photos show a couple of loggers in helmets and red suspenders standing on top of a fallen log. These things are enormous. He's standing on a tree that is as tall as... Oh, wait, is that you?
3: Yeah, that's me. You're yeah. standing
2: on a tree that is as wide as you are tall.
3: Oh, yeah. There was some huge timber up there that was from five to seven, eight foot on the stump.
2: That means eight feet wide at the base. These were the kind of trees Stephen cut all through the 70s and the 80s. He spent every day in the woods, rain or shine, sick or injured. What did you love about it?
3: Oh, back then, I, I liked being outdoors. I hunted, I fished, and... It was a feel a feeling of freedom out there because you might work for somebody else, but when you're out there working you're
2: you're your own boss. You also make good money without needing a college degree.
3: When I was twenty-three years old, I was making between twenty-five and thirty thousand dollars a year and hell I thought I was really making big money, you
2: know, and I It was the so kind I, of job that could support a family, buy a house, a truck, maybe a boat. Timber was the economic lifeblood of all the small towns in the Saniam Canyon and many of the small towns throughout the Northwest. If you didn't have a job at the mill or in the woods, you had a family member or a neighbor who did. And your kids probably played on a baseball team sponsored by the local timber company.
3: It was a good, you know, then it was a good feeling. And in the 70s and 80s, we figured, God, we're
2: going to do this forever. Stephan planned to log until he retired. He even built up a business that employed nearly 30 cutters. But environmentalists wanted to keep Stefan from ever cutting trees again, or at least these ancient ones. So back at the North Roaring Devil Sale, when the loggers returned on the second morning, their wives and families came out in support.
5: Save our loggers! Save our loggers!
2: Several dozen locals gathered alongside the road and under thick branches to stay out of the falling sleet. They waved hand-painted signs saying things like, give a hoot, save the Oregon woodworker. Their main goal was countering the protesters' message to the news cameras.
5: This is our livelihood. (laughs) This puts food on our tables.
2: It felt like loggers were watching their way of life teeter on the brink. And instead of getting sympathy like farmers or auto workers, they were getting blamed. This is how one logger put it.
3: They had signs up calling us a U.S. destruction crew. As far as I'm concerned, I care more about what is out there in that forest than anybody out there.
2: For both sides, the clock was ticking. The judge would decide whether to halt the logging the next day. So the question was, would there be any trees left standing for him to rule on? The loggers and law enforcement started up the final stretch of Plowed Road, led by the Forest Service's front-end loader. We
3: kind of went in in a caravan, all went together because these people were on the sides of the road and up in the hills. and this one guy, he jumped up off the side of the road and got right in my face and threw some mud and then spit in my face too. And I was mad. and I, I stopped the pickup and Jim Morgan said, just this set here. Just take it." I said, you just don't know how hard that is to take.
2: Meanwhile, Tim was racing the logging convoy by foot, trying to figure out how to slow it down. They went all out. Uh, It was a huge convoy of law enforcement vehicles
4: and front-end loaders and snowmobiles. It was kind of horrific because that front-end loader is just smashing through all barricades. Just behind me, I saw one of our activists throw himself into the scoop of the front end loader. Just
2: just slow it down. I mean, epic heroism there. Knowing they couldn't stop the heavy machinery, Tim headed up the road into the deeper snow, where the loggers would have to continue on snowmobiles. And then one by one, other people started
4: joining me. And we say, let's make our her stand here. And at that, right at that moment, we hear the whine of a snowmobile. So we just held hands like paper dolls that spread out across the road. And sure enough, it was a snowmobile carrying the county sheriff. And he was like standing up on the back and he jumps off and says, you're all under arrest. And he actually handcuffed us together, holding hands. And it was the most bizarre moment because he steps back and then realizes, oh, there's one of me and Five or six to you and you're all handcuffed together and still blocking the road. So the the sheriffs have been doing all the arrests up to that point and the forest service is out of the camera view, stand behind. But that required a bunch of Forest Service people to, you know, we had laid down in the snow and they had to drag us out. To me that was just shocking. The lengths that the agency was going to try to preempt the, the court case. I
2: mean, it was just kind of a mad rush to get those trees cut down. And they did. Over the next few days, the logging company brought in an extra team of tree fallers. And Stefan says they cut two weeks of trees in three days, just to get them on the ground, which only incited the protesters more.
3: All we did, we it was like a big bee's nest. We just stirred them up really good, you know. They, They really went to work then.
2: The Forest Service fenced the area off, but activists snuck in at night. The Forest Service is cutting too fast. They're too greedy. We want to slow things down. Each day, they tried new methods to stall the logging crews, inventing and refining the strategies that would become the hallmark of the forest defense movement and inform future protests against everything from oil pipelines in Montana to mountaintop mining in West Virginia. Three hours later, the sheriff arrived, and the real drama began. They circled one of the giant trees and locked their necks together with U-locks, forcing the sheriff to bring in a locksmith. The Lynn County deputies arrested four protesters on disorderly conduct charges. Earth First was known for sabotage, and according to loggers, activists damaged chainsaws and other machines in the night. Then a few of them climbed trees and set up slings, thinking the cutters would steer clear of the whole area but Stephen's boss told him to cut the nearby trees anyway. I got
3: a little bit close to that one tree. It didn't hurt the person, it didn't hurt the tree, but it scared the living bejesus out of the, the kid that was up in the tree. It came down pretty immediately. He decided he didn't want any more of that. and It wasn't a good idea to do it, but
2: I did it. <laughs> So even with their lives literally hanging in the balance, the protesters couldn't stop the chainsaws. On Tuesday, two days after the protests started, a federal judge heard the environmentalists' challenge. Like many justices in Oregon, he was widely regarded as sympathetic to the industry. So his ruling came as no surprise. A federal district judge in Portland, Oregon, today rejected a request by conservationists that he block logging on a stand of centuries-old trees. There's going to be so many people that are outraged. This is all out war. But unlike the smaller protests that had come before, this time, the nation paid attention. The North Roaring Devil Sale got covered by the likes of Good Morning America, The Today Show, and NPR loggers and environmentalists in Oregon are locked in a battle over a stand of ancient trees. That was the first time that
4: at least public opinion radically shifted. We weren't a bunch of eco-terrorists in the woods. We were upholding the law and, you know, defending what was irreplaceable.
5: And it is really the action that put old growth logging and ancient forests on the map. It really helped form the movement and inform our tactics. For
2: Katya and Tim, that was the silver lining, because it's hard to say there was a winner of this battle at North Roaring Devil. In one big sense, the protesters lost. All the old growth trees were cut down, and the environmentalists took to calling it the Easter Massacre. But for Stefan and the loggers, it felt like a different kind of loss.
3: It decimated a lot of communities. It wasn't good, it was, it was real bad. It was bad on me. I mean, I, I went from, let's say, just having a good job to no job for a while. But, you know, I picked myself up and, well, I didn't. I was, I was really mad at the world. Um, in the late 90s era, I kinda hated everybody <laughs> that didn't like the trees to be cut. You know, when you go from being a logger that makes forty thousand dollars a year, maybe back then fifty, to flipping hamburgers down at McDonald's, it it wasn't very good. It wasn't a very good deal.
2: So these were the stakes that would define the war to come. The last of America's great virgin forests versus the livelihood and dignity of timber towns across the Northwest. This wasn't a war between good and evil. It was a confrontation between two opposing worldviews. Were these forests irreplaceable ecosystems that we needed to preserve? Or were they renewable resources we could cut and regrow over and over? Because it was never a given that America would preserve any of its ancient forests. After all, humans cut the old growth that grew in places like the Middle East, Europe, and most of the U.S. so long ago, we don't even remember it was there. So when the trees came down at North Roaring Devil, it was the first move in a high-stakes chess match that's still playing out. Because the timber wars didn't end. They evolved. And at the heart of this conflict, the deep down root cause, was another revolution going on in the forest, a series of scientific discoveries that would upend the timber industry. In fact, what we were learning was about to fundamentally alter how people interact with the natural world. That's next time on Timber Wars. Timber Wars is reported and written by me, Aaron Scott, with editing by Peter Frickwright, Robbie Carver, David Steves, and Ed Yon. The series is produced by me and Peter and Robbie of 30 Minutes West. Our music is by Laura Gibson, sound design by Robbie Carver, and final mixing by Stephen Cray. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Legal oversight by Rebecca Morris, and our executive producer is Ed Yon. Special thanks to the NPR Story Lab team for helping us get this series and the first episode off the ground. Especially Michael May, Kara Tallo, Matt Ozig, Katie Doggart, Adelina Lansionis, and to Jenna Molster and Daniel Wood for the NPR archival tape. Thanks also to the University of Oregon Library for the KEZI TV footage, and archivist Nathan Georgitis for helping us dig through it. It's really rare for newsrooms to have the resources to commit to big projects like Timber Wars. And I can't express how grateful I am to have been given the time to talk to so many people about this huge moment in U.S. history. But that's only possible because of all the members who support Oregon Public Broadcasting. So if you want us to do more projects like this, please become a sustaining member today. It's super easy to do at opb.org slash pod. And if you like this show, please share it and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening. It helps us spread the word.
0: When I hear stories like these, I'm always simultaneously inspired by the depth of commitment to protecting nature and horrified That we've gotten to a point where people are feeling the need to put their lives on the line to protect it. And then also extremely frustrated at how often it feels like we're just talking past each other.
1: Yeah. There's so much talking at each other and so little talking to each other. And fitting with that vibe of talking to each other that we try to model here on How to Save a Planet, the Timber Wars series ends. So there's there's a lot more episodes, and we encourage you to go and follow on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And the Timber Wars series concludes with a story about a group of environmentalists and loggers who have managed to overcome their differences through a lot of hard conversations.
0: And shared bourbon. <laughs> shared bourbon,
1: indeed. Uh, to try to manage the forest in a way that works for everyone, works for people and and for the planet.
0: We love a win-win.
1: Yep, we do.
0: So check out Timber Wars from Oregon Public Broadcasting. And we, How to Save a Planet, we, will be back with a new show next week.